Well, friends, we are back this morning in the book of Romans. This is the sixth sermon in this series. There is a misprint in your bulletin. We apologize for that. We are looking today at Romans 2, 17 to 29. We looked at verses 1 to 16 of chapter 2 last week. We will not be covering those again. Uh, Romans 2, 17 through 29. You can go ahead and turn there if you have your Bibles with you. A few things I want to say before we read the text. This is Thanksgiving weekend. It's just a pointed time for us to remind one another of the good things that the Lord has given and the things that the Lord has done on our behalf in our place. And as you listen to this message this morning, we're going to be thinking a lot about God's law. And my hope for us all today is that in considering the standard of God's law and what he requires for righteousness, that our hearts will be filled all the more with gratitude to God for Jesus Christ, who has kept the law for us and who is our righteousness and thereby our hope, our confidence and our standing today and forever before the Lord. May that be accomplished in our midst this morning. A few other things before we read Romans 2, 17 to 29. I'm going to keep saying this just so that we are crystal clear. Critical for our understanding of this section of Paul's letter to the Romans is that he began an argument in chapter 1 and verse 18 that he does not conclude until chapter 3 and verse 20. We've said this for multiple weeks in a row now. But it is critical for our understanding that we see that that is true. In other words, our verses today from Romans 2 are in the middle of a cohesive argument that the apostle is making. This will save us from a multitude of errors if we keep this in mind. Remember as well what Paul is doing in this section of Romans. He is establishing the universal sinfulness of mankind, period. Universal meaning Gentile and Jew, the people of Israel and every other kind on planet Earth. Paul is establishing that all men stand guilty before God, have not kept the law, and have offended God's law that he requires perfect obedience to for righteousness. So we are undone and our mouths are shut. We have no hope in ourselves. Let's look to the text. Romans 2, 17 to 29. Listen as I read. This is the word of God. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God, by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, 
will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Amen. We thank the Lord for his word today and every day. I want to make a few comments by way of overview before we get into the text in great detail. It's very plain in these verses we're considering today that the Jews are in view. Paul is writing to Jewish individuals who would have been a part of the church in Rome or who would have been in the midst of the church in Rome. Paul is going to demonstrate that even though the Jews have been given every external advantage over the Gentiles, they are just as ruined before God as the heathen Gentiles are when it comes to righteousness. Paul has established that the Gentiles stand condemned. They are without excuse before God. He has even been plain that Gentiles have the law of God written in their hearts. We considered this even last week. The Jews have the law of God given to them. They have advantages that the Lord has provided them. But Paul's argument here is that none of their advantages will protect them from the just condemnation of God. Paul starts in verses 17 to 20 by conceding and allowing for all the privileges the Jews had pertaining to the law. And then in verses 21 to 24, we see where this is headed. We see where he's going with his argument. He acknowledges and concedes all of these privileges so that he might crush his Jewish readers all the more with the standard of the law. He is going to show how inadequate these privileges were for the attainment of glory. And in fact, how these privileges that God had afforded the Jewish people become to them of reproach and condemnation. They appeal to the law, but they haven't kept it. They rely upon the law, but they have not attained righteousness under it. They are condemned by the very law upon which they rely. Then, beginning in verse 25, Paul addresses circumcision. The Jews' last bastion of defense and perhaps their highest appeal. Paul argues that even circumcision, being marked off as the people of God under the Old Covenant, even circumcision does not justify anyone in the sight of God. So there's two sections to this text. I trust that was plain even in our overview comments. Paul considers first the law, and then he considers circumcision. In all of this, he is indicting the Jews and making it plain. He's continued to make plain how all men, Gentile and Jew alike, stand condemned before the holy God. So we'll consider those two sections the law, and circumcision. And even though Paul is writing to Jews in this section, I trust that we will easily see how what Paul writes here applies to us if we have not already seen it. Here we go. Let's consider first the law, verses 17 to 24. 
Paul begins, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent or approve what's essential because you're instructed from the law. So if all of this is true of you, that you are of God's people, you're not like the nations, you're not like the Gentiles, you are uniquely God's people under the old covenant. When it comes to your status, you rely upon the fact that you have the law. You rely upon the fact that the oracles of God belong to you. If this is true of you, that you boast in God, meaning you boast that the Lord is your God as a Jew. If it's true of you that you know God's will and approve what's excellent, you approve what's essential because God has revealed it to you in the law. In other words, you have the law so you know God's will is revealed will. You have the law so you know the things that are excellent and useful. He goes on. If the following is true of you, and if you are sure, if you are confident of these things, that you are a guide to the blind, if you're confident that you're a light to those who are in darkness, again, because you have the law, if you are sure that you are an instructor of the foolish because you have the law. If you are sure that you are a teacher of children, a teacher of the immature because you have the law. Insertion. What's Paul doing? You see it. He is exalting the advantages of the Jews. The privileges of the Jews. He is elevating Raising the water level. He is esteeming those with as much force and as much fervor as any Jew could have done. And he is now going to pivot. And he is going to make their hypocrisy plain. He is going to show the depth of their corruption that lies underneath a very nice exterior. And he does this by asking a series of rhetorical questions beginning in verse 21. All of these questions in being rhetorical anticipate an answer. You get the sense of that even as you read it. We're going to look at it together. Beginning in verse 21, you who teach others. If all of these things that I've been saying and extolling, if all of these things are true of you, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Do you not teach yourself what the law really requires? Do you not apply the law to the human heart the way that it is supposed to be applied? Anticipated answer? No, you do not. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You're right to preach against stealing. But do you violate the law in that area? Anticipated answer? Yes, you do. You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Again, you're right in saying that one must not do that. But do you violate the law in that area? Anticipated answer, yes, you do. You who abhor idols, you hate them, you detest them, you loathe them, do you rob temples? You're right in condemning idolatry. You are right in hating idols. 
But do you effectively rob God? Do you appropriate to yourself things that are God's and profane things that are sacred? Anticipated answer. Yes, you do. Notice what Paul is driving home here. The Jews, because of the doctrine of the law, the teaching of the law, were able to distinguish right from wrong. They were able to pass judgment on the conduct of others based on the law. That's wrong, they would say. That's in violation of the law. It's not in conformity with the law. But they themselves have failed to live in accord with the very law upon which they rely. And so they too stand condemned. Just as condemned, it turns out, as any heathen Gentile. And in some senses, one could argue, if not more so, due to the privileges and advantages that they had that the Gentiles did not have. Verse 23. Just a quick note here. Your ESV, if you're looking at that, renders this verse as a statement, which is fine. It communicates the sense of it well, but it really is in the form of a question again. It really reads, You who boast in the law, through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? Again, anticipated answer? Yes. You do. You boast in the law. The law was perhaps the great distinguishing possession of the Jews. They had God's law. No other people did. The Lord had spoken to them out of the fire. The Lord's ten words had been given to them on two tablets of stone. You boast in the law. Understandable. What a privilege. Not only do you boast in the law, you rely on it. You put your trust in the fact that you have the law and you know what is good because you've been taught by the law. That's your confidence. We have the law. We know what's good because the law has taught us that. But, says Paul, you actually dishonor God because you break that law. You have not kept it. You think that you stand before God justified because you have the law and know what's good. But you have grossly abused and broken the law in which you boast. And so you too, just like the Gentiles, stand condemned. Verse 24. For as it is written, Paul cites the prophets as an affirmation of what he's just asserted. The name of God is blasphemed. It's profane among the Gentiles because of you. The prophet Isaiah uses this language in Isaiah 52 in verse 5. But the language of Ezekiel, from my estimation, is even more in view. Ezekiel chapter 36. Beginning in verse 17. The word of the Lord came to me. That's verse 16. And this is the prophet Ezekiel. 
Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. The Lord sent them into exile, right? But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. In that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord. And yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. How many different times in those few verses does that word, you have profaned my name among the nations come up? Paul cites the prophets as an affirmation of what he has asserted, that you dishonor God by breaking the law in which you boast. You dishonor God through your law-breaking to such an extent that his name is literally blasphemed all over the world. This is true in two ways. One, the sin of Israel had resulted in their exile, in their dispersion. And this caused the Gentiles to accuse the Lord of weakness and a lack of power that he couldn't save his people from such a miserable plight. It's the language of the prophets. On the other hand, the Gentiles saw the corruption of Israel and then would conclude that this is the religion and way of life that the Lord prescribes. So to sum up Paul's argument regarding the law and the Jewish people, he says, look, you appeal to the law, but you haven't kept it. You rely on the law, but you haven't attained righteousness under it. And in fact, the very law in which you boast condemns you. Now we move forward to consider circumcision. If the Jew is not justified before God by the law, maybe circumcision will do it. Let's see what Paul has to say, verses 25 to 29. Paul continues his argument, his same argument that the Jews, like the Gentiles, are guilty. And he does so by writing on circumcision. This is a big thing. Circumcision, you understand, was to be marked off as one of God's people under the Old Covenant. And hear this. It was a sign that was more ancient than Moses. It came before the law was given. Paul is about to argue that circumcision does not, in and of itself, justify anyone in God's sight. The mere sign of circumcision was not enough to lay claim on eternal life. In fact, given what Paul had already laid out regarding the Jews, all of their advantages that include circumcision, 
we're going to see that the advantages of the Jews and even circumcision itself only serves to enhance their condemnation. Paul has already hammered the Jewish people with the standard of the law, and now he is going to blow up their last bastion of defense, their last great appeal, circumcision. Put your eyes on verse 25. Paul says, circumcision is indeed of value if what? You keep the law. But if you break the law, you're no different than the uncircumcised when it comes to being justified in God's sight. And remember in all of this, to be justified is to be found righteous. To be justified is to be declared righteous. And righteousness equals keeping the law. Verse 26, Paul is going to paint another hypothetical picture. If an uncircumcised man were to keep the law, will his uncircumcision, the fact that he's not a Jew, not be regarded or counted as circumcision? Anticipated answer, yes, it would be. Will he not be counted as one of God's sons in truth if he keeps the law? Yes, he would. Will he not be justified, an uncircumcised man in the sight of God, if he keeps the law? Yes, he would. Putting all of this together, circumcision only serves as a ground of condemnation for those who have been circumcised and at the same time break the law. And on the other hand, a lack of circumcision would be of no detriment to anyone who did keep the law. Verse 27, Paul goes on. So the uncircumcised law keeper, that hypothetical uncircumcised law keeper, will condemn you who have the law and have circumcision, but break the law. He will condemn you because he is righteous, he is justified, and you're not. You understand that the Jews viewed circumcision as an initiatory and distinctive right of their religion, without which they did not believe a person could be justified in God's sight. This is why circumcision becomes an issue even in the early church, particularly amongst Jewish believers. Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus works of the law, but circumcision was a unique thing because of how the Jews understood it. And Paul is demonstrating that this understanding that the Jews had is woefully inadequate. He goes on in verses 28 and 9 to drive it home. He says, for no one is a Jew, no one is Israel, right? You know the language of Romans. Not all Israel is Israel. So no one is a Jew, no one is Israel, one of God's sons or daughters, who is merely one outwardly. No one is a Jew in that sense through birth, natural descent, through possession of the law, or even through the sign of circumcision. Verse 29, to be a Jew, to be Israel in truth, to be one of God's sons or daughters is an inward reality. And the circumcision that matters in the eyes of God is as well an inward reality. It's a matter of the heart, 
an external right in conformity to a written code will never justify a man in God's sight. Why? Because the judgment of God penetrates to the inner recesses of the human heart. The true Jew, the true child of God, thereby does not get his praise from men, but from God. Human beings praise what we see. In the context, the praise of men is grounded in outward displays of piety and strength and goodness. The praise of men is grounded in circumcision or in conformity to the law to some degree, or in just having the law and boasting in it and knowing what's right, knowing what's excellent. That's what the praise of men is rooted in. This is what self-righteous, deceived people receive. The praise of God is different, though. God sees the secrets of the heart. And so his praise is for those who are found to be righteous at the level of the heart. Which if you're thinking, feeling anything, you're like, brother, that raises a significant question. How will anyone ever be found to be righteous like that? If that's what you're asking, you're understanding Paul. Do you see what he's doing? Let's continue to reflect on these things together, right? In the time that we have left. Let's think well according to God's word. First header here is in our time of reflection. Let's reflect well on Paul's argumentation regarding the law. How does Paul use the law? As I've said many times in this series already, Paul knows exactly what he's doing. This letter is brilliant by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Think of the picture that he has painted in verses 17 to 20 of Romans 2. I'm going to read to you the words of, of Robert Haldane lived a couple hundred years ago in Europe. He says it so well, I just want to read these words to you. The picture that Paul paints in verses 17 to 20. Quote, Was there ever a more beautiful veil than under which the Jew presents himself? He is a man of confession, of praise, of thanksgiving. A man whose trust is in the law, whose boast is of God, who knows his will, who approves of things that are excellent. A man who calls himself a conductor of the blind, a light of those who are in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of babes. A man who directs others, who preaches against theft, against adultery, against idolatry. And to sum up the whole, a man who glories in the commandments of the Lord. Who would not say, that this is an angel arrayed in human form, a star detached from the firmament and brought nearer to enlighten the earth. 
But observe what is concealed under this mask. It is a man who is himself untaught. It is a thief, an adulterer, a sacrilegious person. In one word, a wicked man who continually dishonors God by the transgression of his law. Close quote. That's exactly right. This is why we talk often in our church and Christians have through history about the first and greatest use of the law. It is on full display in this chapter. What is the first and greatest use of the law, you might ask? It is to show us the depth of our corruption. It is to ruin us before God so that we might despair of our own righteousness and we might look to the only one who has earned it. And by faith in him, we might be justified in the sight of God. That is the first and greatest use of the law. Romans 5.20 Now the law came in to increase the trespass. How do you understand that? It came in to increase the trespass, meaning to show us how horrible it is. To intensify our understanding of sin. To call sin what it is. Romans 7, 12 and 13. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Let's get that straight. There is zero problem whatsoever with God's law. It is good, upright, pure and holy. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means, says Paul later in this very letter. It was sin producing death in me through that which is good in order that this in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The law came in to increase the trespass in that sense. To show us that we are sinful beyond measure. That to break the law of God is sinful beyond comprehension. Galatians 3.19, Paul asks the question, after having extolled the promise of God in Christ. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, says Paul, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. That's Jesus. Romans 3, 19 to 22. This is where this whole thing is headed. The train is going to reach the station. Right here in Romans 3, 19 to 22. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since what? Through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, first use of the law, right? Where does it drive us? It ruins us. It crushes us to do what? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Somebody say amen. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it's always been the plan of God that it would be this way. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
I will raise up a righteous branch for David. He will execute justice and righteousness in the land. And the name by which he will be called is the Lord is our righteousness. We've thought about Paul's use of the law a little bit now. Romans 2, Romans 5, Romans 7, Galatians 3. Let's consider for the next number of moments, the greatest sermon on the law that's ever been preached. Which sermon is that? The Sermon on the Mount. This is all kinds of cool. Just say this and leave it with you, and then we're going to move on to the sermon itself. Not insignificant. Moses was given the law on a mountain. God the Son takes on flesh, becomes a man, And the first great teaching recorded in Matthew's gospel for us is what? On the side of the mountain, the one who gave the law to Moses is now going to preach the law as it should be preached to the people. That is significant. Now, Matthew 5. If you have your Bibles, you can turn or you can listen. It's okay either way. This is going to be more by way of a flyover of Matthew 5 and then Matthew 7 so that we can understand what Christ is doing in this sermon. I'm going to lay my cards on the table. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, in particular in chapter 5, is doing exactly what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 2. He is crushing people with the standard of the law. The message is, this cannot be done by you. He begins with the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, by the way, are statements of fact. They are not platitudes that we are to try to conform ourselves to. They are statements of fact. We are none of these things naturally. You know that. I know that. The Beatitudes have everything to do with being crushed and humbled by the law and being driven to the Messiah so that we might receive a righteousness. The Beatitudes are the opposite of trusting in oneself. They are the opposite of trusting that one can achieve righteousness. And then they speak of the reality of those who have been united to the Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. A righteousness that they have received. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. It's where your righteousness comes from. Verses 17 to 20, he goes in. He makes it very plain from the jump. Do not understand anything I'm about to say to be me abolishing the law. Not what I'm doing. I have not come to abolish it. I've come to fulfill it. And then what does he do? Jesus, contrary to popular opinion, does not lower the standard of the law. That's how many people talk in the church. Oh, well, you know, genuine, sincere, half-baked obedience, God honors it. No, that's not what he's saying. He, if anything, raises the bar, turns up the temperature. He says, let nothing be taken away from this law. None of this is going to pass away. He's talking about the moral law very clearly. Do not take away from it. Do not relax these commandments or teach anyone to relax them. Then verse 20. 
I'm telling you, you need a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and Pharisees. You need a righteousness that is far greater than the most righteous people in the land from your estimation. You need to be righteous in a way that you have not comprehended. Then verses 21 to 30, we have exhibit A and exhibit B in terms of the first use of the law to crush a sinner in his sin and drive him to another who's kept the law. He begins with anger. You've heard it said that you should not murder. It's in the Ten Commandments. But I'm telling you that if you're angry, you've broken that commandment. You have not done this. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Also in the Ten Commandments. But I'm telling you that if you lust after someone, you've broken the law. You see how he is raising the bar. Then he goes on in verses 31 to 47 to blow up a number of things that were common in the day amongst the people of Israel. Divorce. It was very common for any conceivable reason. Jesus blows it up. Oaths. People were swearing oaths in a way that they thought was fine. Jesus blows it up. Retaliation. People feel justified in taking vengeance into their own hands. Jesus blows it up. Love your enemies, right? People are loving their friends and neighbors, but not their enemies and feel justified in doing it. Jesus blows it up. You think you're righteous. You think you're doing okay. You haven't understood. And then if there were any questions, in sum, to sum up verse 48 of Matthew 5, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And if any fallen human being hears that sentence and says, yeah, it makes sense. Sounds good to me. We have not understood the law. Matthew 7, the last third of the sermon. In light of what Christ has done in chapter 5, how is he going to land the plane? In verses 1 to 5, there are verses that are eerily similar to things that we've considered already from Romans 2. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The issue here is that you pass judgment. You condemn other people to judgment. All the while, you do the exact same things that they do. You look at their conduct and you condemn them all while you do that exact same stuff. That's his point there. The whole piece on the log in our own eye is just a hyperbolic example of our hypocrisy and our blindness to how sinful we are. We are much, much more corrupt than we ever care to see or acknowledge. Then in verses 7 to 11, he goes on to talk about ask and it will be given. In the context, what would that mean? If you see your sin, if you've heard me when it comes to the law and its standard, if you've been crushed by it and you cry out to God, save me. I can't do this. I need salvation. And you're asking for this. God will not withhold it from you. Our confession says this. He rewards those who diligently seek him, right? Seeking salvation. He says, Jesus does in the sermon, 
You, as earthly fathers, when your children ask you for good things, do you give them bad things? No. If you ask for this good thing from your heavenly father, he's going to give it to you. Then in verses 13 and 14, we get into the conversation about the narrow gate. You understand that Jesus, in the analogy, in the metaphor, is the narrow gate. He is. He's talking about justification by faith in him. He's not talking about striving to obey the law better. It's not what he means. He couldn't mean that. Remember who he's talking to. He's talking to people who think that they can attain righteousness or think that because of their status, circumcision and the law, that they already have justification, a la Romans 2. It's as natural as breathing for human beings to trust in themselves. To think that we can attain it. It is really hard. Actually, let's use biblical language. It is impossible to look away from oneself and trust another person who has been righteous for you. That is supernatural. That you would look to God's Christ and say, there is my righteousness. Yet, that's what we are exhorted to. Ask and the Lord will give it to you. Strive to enter by the narrow gate, which is Christ for you. Verses 15 to 20. Prophets and teachers are to be judged by their fruit, he says. What is their teaching producing? Self-righteousness? Confidence in oneself? Or despair of one's righteousness and trust in the Savior? Verses 21 to 23. Matthew 7. I'm going to read them. I trust many in the room have been affected by these. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. A couple million dollar questions on those verses. Those individuals who come and call Jesus Lord, what is their appeal? Where is their confidence? Is it not in what they've done? Is it not? You see it, just like I do. What is the ground of their appeal? Lord, did we not do this stuff? Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Didn't we do these things? And then Jesus tells them that they are workers of lawlessness. You're a lawbreaker. And you're appealing to your deeds done in my name. Then verses 24 to 27. Whoever hears these words of mine, Jesus says, and does them, literally puts them into practice. Hears these words, processes, and acts accordingly. Whoever has heard me in that regard, is like the one, the wise man, who built his house on the rock. And this isn't a sermon series through Matthew. Suffice it to say, the rock, beloved, is Jesus Christ. It is not your obedience. Can't be. The rock upon which we stand is Christ, the righteous one. It's clear in the sermon that's what he's doing. He's talking about justification by trust 
in him. This is how he lands the Sermon on the Mount, and it only makes sense in light of everything that he said. And if there still is a question, Matthew 8, 1. Context matters, does it not? We talk about that often. Things are written the way they're written for a reason, by the inspiration of the Spirit. Matthew 8, 1. He comes down from the mountain, having preached the greatest sermon on the law ever preached. What's he do? What happens? A defiled person comes up to him, a leper. A person unclean, unworthy, living his entire life outside the camp. He comes and he asks a good thing. Seek, ask, and you'll find it. It'll be given to you, right? He asks a good thing. He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. If you're willing, you can do this. And Jesus stretches out his hand and touches him and says, I will. I am willing. Be clean. And immediately the leper is cleansed. Jesus is the only person who can make defiled people clean. He touches the leper. He doesn't become unclean. He touches the leper and the leper becomes clean. That's right after the Sermon on the Mount, friends. This is how we should understand the first and greatest use of the law. From the Sermon on the Mount or Romans 2, Paul's argumentation in Romans chapter 2 is that no one is worthy, no one is clean, no one is righteous, everyone is in desperate need, everyone is a debtor, and every human being, Jew and Gentile alike, stands condemned. You remember those words from Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Consider the words of Jesus from John's gospel, chapter 6. In John 6, 28 and 29, he's speaking again to a crowd. And the crowd says to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? It's John 6, 28. How does Jesus answer there? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. John 6, 40. What's the will of the father? What is the will of the father? According to Jesus himself, this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. That, beloved, is not anything remotely resembling, depart from me, I never knew you. Not at all. This is the way that the law is used in its first and greatest use. We considered earlier the words of the prophet Ezekiel. The Lord's name had been profaned among the nations. It had been blasphemed among the nations because of the sinfulness of Israel because of the sinfulness of God's people. So the question that we should be asking is, in light of that reality, what will God do? What will he do? If people are so corrupt, and people break his law, and people dishonor him by breaking his law, and his name is profaned because of how people live, what will he do? 
Ezekiel 36, 24 and following. I will take you, this is God speaking, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people. And I will be your God. Fallen human beings are sinful beyond measure. We are rebellious. And we are ruined. And in the face of that, hear that, in the face of that, the Lord will save his people. He will deliver his people. He will give his people the land that he had always promised, the new heavens and the new earth. He will sanctify his people. And he will be with his people forever in that land that he will give them. This is how the Lord acts in the face of the law breaking of his people. All of this is accomplished according to God's eternal plan. All of this is accomplished through the work of God the Son who took on flesh, who is the righteous one, who is his people's righteousness. He would keep the law in the place of his people. To be righteous is to keep the law. Jesus kept it every moment. And he would die to atone for all of the lawbreaking of all of the people of God from all time. So in short, if you're asking that question, if God's judgment penetrates into the inner recesses of the human heart, the mind, the level of desire, how will anyone ever be found to be righteous like that? The answer is Christ. Because he was righteous like that as a man. And anyone who trusts in him is united to him, and represented by him, and thereby in him will be found righteous in the judgment. This is the message of the prophets. This is Paul's message in Romans. And this is the message of the scriptures. And on this Thanksgiving weekend, beloved, we thank God for that. Let's pray.